Hello, and welcome to another edition of Truth and Rhythm, brought to you by FunkinStuff.net. This is a show that gets deep in the pocket with contemporary music's foremost masters of the groove. I'm your host, Scott Dr. James Goldfein, musicologist and author of Everything is on the One, the First Guide to Funk. If you don't have your copy, get on over to Amazon and pick one up. You'll be glad you did. Whether you're watching or listening, as always, I thank you very much for your continued interest and support. And if you haven't already subscribed, why don't you get on over to YouTube and subscribe to the Funkin' Stuff channel, which is the home of Truth and Rhythm. And if you've already subscribed, tell a friend. Featured in this episode is singer, producer, composer, Al Hudson, and his partner in funk and soul for more than 45 years, Dave Robertson. Beginning first in the early 1970s out of Detroit as Al Hudson and the Soul Partners before becoming Al Hudson and the Partners, and finally Al Hudson and One Way by the end of that decade, the pair was at the forefront of generating 15 albums and dozens of classic songs. Along with another key collaborator, bassist composer Kevin McCord, the group unleashed some of the fiercest, most infectious, and authentic funk between 1978 and 1987. Between those and a few soul-oriented songs, they notched 13 top 40 R&B singles during a seven-year stretch, five of them reaching the top 10 between 1982 and 1987, including their biggest hit, The Throbbing Cutie Pie. Other hits and funk classics included Do Your Thang, In the Basement, Pop It, Copy This, Pull Fancy Dancer Pull, Get Up, Hold It, Push, Wild Night, Can I, Let's Get Together, Don't Fight the Feeling, Shine On Me, Sugar Rock, Lady You Are, Mr. Groove, Serving It, Don't Think About It, Whammy, You Better Quit, and Get Up Off It. Wow, that is some list. Although that was quite a run, the group did eventually lose some complexity in its sound and momentum with the death of mentor producer Al Perkins which was also a tremendous emotional blow to the band, as well as the eventual departure of McCord in the mid-1980s. A label change from MCA to Capitol in 1988 brought the ironically titled A New Beginning, which scarcely charted and was to be the final one-way album. The fantastic news is that led by Hudson and Robertson, One Way is not only performing again, but also planning to release its first new music in 30 years. In the most in-depth accounting of the One Way Saga, Hudson and Robertson talk about the early days, all of their albums and those amazing tracks, memories from the road, their most unforgettable experiences, and how thrilled they are to be delivering their stellar sounds to audiences once again. As a fan since 1979, I have always felt One Way was a bit enigmatic and often overlooked as being a top-shelf funk R&B band. I have been trying to track them down and bring the one-way story to Truth and Rhythm viewers for at least a year, which makes this all the more personally gratifying to be able to do so now. Instrumental in helping that happen was music manager Belinda Preval, who had helped him previously to get Brick on Truth and Rhythm. She connected me with one-way's manager, Cal Spencer, who then was very involved in bringing this to fruition. So very grateful and much thanks to them. You know, I would gladly stack One Way's hottest dozen or so most wicked grooves against any act that has ever scratched a guitar, plucked a bass, or thumped a drum. Let there be no doubt 
that one way is one of the best ways to funk. I'm so pleased to welcome to the Truth and Rhythm Mothership singer, producer, composer, Al Hudson, and guitarist, composer, arranger, Dave Robertson, co-founders of the fantastic 1970s and 1980s funk R&B band, One Way. Hey, all righty, one way. <laughs> there ain't but one way. That's right. Oh, absolutely. That's right. That's right. <laughs> if you want to get funky, it's only one way to do it. <laughs> well, guys, so glad to have you uh, coming to us live from Detroit, right? That's right. Yes. Correct. Yeah. All right. That's a cradle of funk and soul right there, if there ever was one. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. So for our viewers, uh, you know, uh, Dave is on the right, Al's on the left. <laughs> there you yep, go. Yep. <laughs> no name tags necessary. Right, exactly. <laughs> well, I got to tell you, as I was telling you before we went on air, I just want the listeners to know, too, what a huge fan I am. Been following you since Pop It in, like, 1979, 1980. Got all the records after that. I was a disc jockey. You were a, a big part of that, you know, and keeping the dance floor moving and keeping the people's working up a good sweat, you know? So yeah, much really appreciated. Sounds good. <laughs> you guys came with uh, killer tracks every single record, so we'll go through that. But um, what an incredible legacy. You know, you guys came with so many albums and so many great tracks through all those years, and we'll get into that. But I just want to say congratulations, and it's an honor to have you on. Thank, thank you. Thank you very much. It's an honor to be here with you today. Yeah. Um, you know, also, I'm from the West Coast, and I, I can't speak for other regions, but on the West Coast, tracks like Cutie Pie and those, you know, more down-tempo funk tracks, I mean, they were the anthems out in the Los Angeles, Southern California area, so. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah. They played really big out there. Yeah, that's what we hear from a lot of the fans. Uh, we've been touring the West Coast a lot in the last three, four, five years or so, and and uh, we get a lot of um, a lot of applause from fans that 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 love that our music and just funk in general. Period. You know. Yeah. Well, for my money, you know, you guys did a lot of variety of songs, but when you did funk, nobody could do it better. Some could do it maybe as good, but you guys <laughs> were so authentic. So I mean, much much respect. Hey, you, Thank you. you saying that makes us feel honored. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that. <laughs> we just do what we do and love it. <laughs> well, so guys, let's uh, go back a little, little bit, little ways down memory lane to get started. Um, I think you came out of the Detroit area originally, right? So could you tell me about, you know, a little bit about your childhood, where you're from, and how you first got into music? Maybe um, Al or Dave, with it, whichever one of you wants to start off first. Well, actually, you know, we're born in, well, I'm born and raised right. in Detroit. Dave's from the South, yeah. Georgia. I'm from Rome, Georgia, Rome, actually. Georgia, yeah. But we, we, we got together as young teenagers. Uh, you know, they were doing like a bunch of talent shows back, you know, when we were young. And we met up and did like the Fox Theater in Detroit, which is a big thing now. It was pretty big then, but it's huge now. And uh, we did a talent show there. They did it as a band, uh, and I did it as a solo artist. And we liked what each other was doing, and we hooked up from that show on, actually. Absolutely. And started doing clubs and, you know, talent shows and just 
like what we did and liked the unity and we just stuck together. You know, the, the instrumental part of our band, which back in the day was called the Soul Partners, uh, instrumental music was really big back then with, with bands like the Meters and the Fabulous Counts. Uh, this was before uh, the Ohio Players and people like that. So, so we had no intentions of singing, but we were a very strong instrumental band. And like Al said, when we met up with him, uh, he was a singer without a band, and we were the opposite, a band without a singer. And uh, a lady that was managing him at the time named Gloria Lyons uh, met with us outside the facility and asked us, would we be interested in having a singer uh, join our band? And the rest is history. <laughs> Approximately what year was that? I want to say probably somewhere between 70 and 72. Right. Somewhere between 70 and 72. Yeah, so when you, when you guys, uh, before you guys met each other, when you were coming up, did you come from musical families or how did you get attracted and drawn to music? Well, I, I didn't come from a musical family per se, but my dad sang gospel uh, when I was a little kid and he was in a gospel quartet. And I always remember them rehearsing at our house. And I, I was always in the middle of the rehearsal listening to what they did. And it's, it's, it's amazing that I didn't become a bass player because my dad was a baritone singer and he did all the bass parts because they had no instruments uh, back in the, in, the, in the early 60s in the gospel, in some of the gospel groups. So he did all the low notes and he hummed the, like the bass lines. So I kind of learned to do that. And, uh, uh, and, and so that, that's kind of, I guess, where my musical thing stimulated from. And myself, I had a brother my late brother anyway his name was johnny hudson and uh he was singing with different groups around the city and he was very very talented at singing yeah. and uh he knew the notes and you know he'd tell you when it's off a little bit i don't care if it's uh, like dave does now <laughs> if it's a hair off he gets on you no that wasn't right that's a little flat that's no 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 you know and and then i used to go to different rehearsals with him um, Carl Carlton, I know you know about Carl Carlton, and he was one of the people who were working with my brother, you know, at the same place, rehearsing, and I met up with him and talked with him and, you know, got some ideas, and we just started uh, doing our own thing, and I really just went on to doing shows and talent shows for the high school that I was in, Southeastern, and just carried on from there. And Al's brother, Johnny, I have to give him a, a round of applause because he was probably our biggest critic back then. And we respected it because we know we knew that he knew what he was talking about. So we respected his opinion and he and he would let us know and if something was wrong. As soon as the show was done, he'd come in, tell yeah. us what we did wrong. And, and we moved on from there. Yeah, I get mad at him and love him <laughs> even more. <laughs> oh, I thought we did good. <laughs> Tough love. We all need some of that. Yeah, yes. <laughs> so who, who are some of your early influences on musically? Uh, you know, Dave on guitar and, and Al with your singing. Who are some of the guys that, you know, really kind of got you going? Well, I used to work a lot. Uh, Philippi Wynn from the Spinners, you know, he used to help me out to, you know, get my own little identity and things. But my favorite, I used to do a lot of Al Green. <laughs> and they used to call, as a matter of fact, when I was young, 
we would be at a club and they would say the little Al Green, Al Hudson, and the Soul Partners, you know. And we used to draw people just from that because I did a lot of Al Green songs and the Isley Brothers and, you know, people like that. Because at first, I thought it wasn't good when I do the little Isley Brothers, just like Cutie Pie, when you do the little high notes, Cutie Pie. You know, I thought that's kind of tedious. And uh, being honest, I wasn't so sure about that record. But once it came out and you know i saw what it did to everybody i just hey it just took me over and i love it now so you weren't yeah. huge in the falsetto stuff yeah 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 they, yeah he was the he was the uh the al green ronald isley of the, of the local clubs back in the day yeah <laughs> then later on he also developed a good natural voice so uh and i'll get into this later which which gave him a combination of Al Green, Ronald Isley, and Eddie Levert, uh, along with the little little hints of Felipe Wynn from the Spinners. So that's one of the things that made our band different, our funk band different. You have funk musicians with a balladeer singer, which and, and I also have to throw this in: not only is he a balladeer singer, but he loves funk just as much as we do. Probably more. <laughs> <laughs> so that's kind of what made us uh, made us unique from other funk bands. And and uh, my little upbringing is, uh, and I used to always be intimidated by this because I grew up not being able to solo on guitar. And I used to be intimidated by that because all the guys I grew up with, they were learning Jimi Hendrix and George Benson and people like that. Well, my favorite guitar player back in the day was Jimmy Nolan. Jimmy Nolan played with James Brown. So these guys could solo and and be all over the place and I'd be a little intimidated, but when it came for us to do something, I could hold a funk groove for three days. And, and then I started get, getting people like Roger Troutman used to, used to be in awe of how good he said I could hold a, a pocket. And Roger Troutman was one of the phenomenal guitarists on the planet to me. But here this guy was uh, uh, giving me props of, of, of what, I, what I did so then I learned that I was more of a rhythm guitar player than I was a lead guitar player. So, so I had guys that were great at soloing and playing George Benson and Jimi Hendrix coming to me telling me that they wish they could hold a pocket like I did. So that kind of took my intimidation away. So yeah, I grew up with, I grew up with funk. I could probably play every James Brown song on the planet in my sleep. <laughs> and George Clinton, always been a big fan of George Clinton. Absolutely. We used to be in the studio where it was a privilege then to even be in the studio with this guy. Right, right, You right. know, and watch what they do. And uh, I think he kind of blew our mind in another way because <laughs> he was he was yeah. really good, too. Yeah. I mean, he he do some funk and make you feel it so hard. Yeah. I was, I was going to actually uh, mention that when we get into some of the records about the United Sound uh, vibe there. You mm -hmm. know? Yeah. Uh, That's where Cutie Pie was cut. Mm, no wonder. <laughs> <laughs> it's got that something, you know, uh, United Sound does. Definitely. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So once you guys uh, got together, um, how long was it before you actually got a record deal and kind of really got your act together? Mm, well, we actually, from we were doing like a bunch of, like I said, a bunch of the clubs and the dj from here late uh al perkins and he was in the music in a big way as far as you know the record labels and like kind of kind of powerful with the 
air play different places and uh when he took us on first it was ken bell who was with wjlb they were both there but we were with ken bell but then al perkins i guess he knew he could take us a little further and we you know went with al perkins and uh he helped us to get you know further up yeah the first the, record deal yeah al perkins yeah. he yeah he actually got us our first record deal he's also known for getting deals for a bunch of other artists uh, another group that's uh, got good friends of ours. He got them their deal through um, uh, just knowledge of the business, which was the floaters. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, so it came up through. Uh, we had a local manager whose name was Ken Bell. He was also a DJ on one of the popular stations here, WJLB, along with Ken Bell. And Ken probably managed. The good thing about Ken, Ken managed us maybe about eight nine years. But the cool thing about him, he owned a nightclub. So they gave us work every weekend. Right. Exactly. <laughs> so, uh, and I guess he he noticed that he could only take us so far, and uh, he had Al Perkins to come in and see us at a club at another club one night, uh, and in hopes of turning us over to Al, which Al had more record company connections than Ken did, and then Al took us over, and I would say, from start. We got. We think we got our first deal. Maybe seventy three, seventy two, somewhere in there. And what? Okay. Once Al Perkins took us over, it wasn't long. We got a record, right. record deal within a year after that. Yeah, yeah within well, the first year. Well, I know you guys first did some singles, and then it wasn't until seventy seven when you got the first album out. So Absolutely. The, the singles were on a different label though, because the albums were on yeah, ABC, Atco. right? Atco, yeah. yeah, Atco label with Atlantic Records. Yeah. And Al and I just, well, I, me personally, just figured something out a uh, year before last. Uh, with Atco, we did a bunch of singles. We never really did a full album with Atco Records. And uh, never dawned on us, because we were still kids. We were just happy to have a record out. Uh, so, yeah, we had a bunch of singles with, uh, with the Atco label, which those singles are still riding pretty high in the European market right now. Really? Yeah. Yeah. So um, I haven't heard the singles. I've heard all the albums. But uh, those singles, did you redo any of those? Or are they all just only on those singles? We didn't redo any of them, uh, but they're all still on singles. But here's the good thing, too. We actually, because of those singles, uh, got a show. We did a show year before last over in Blackpool, England, uh, via a gentleman named Ralph T., with a company called Expansion Records, whom also does uh, concerts over there periodically. So he brought us over for a show. The majority of the songs that we performed on the show was a, was a bunch of those Adco singles. Hmm. And during the time when we did the performance, he got permission from Atlantic, or whoever the publisher was back then, where he actually released a new CD called Al Hudson and the Soul Partners slash One Way the Adco years. So that was released at the same time we did the concert, which was January. We did it New Year's Eve. Yeah, I think the uh, first 15, thing, year, the first 2015 was, to 16. Uh, I'm about loving you. Yeah, so they released, he released a, a new CD. Um, I, I, I guess I could say 2016. Right. Uh, again, uh, Al Hudson in one way slash Al Hudson and the Soul Partners, the Adco years. That's so it's, it's available. Oh, that's excellent. So that piece of history lives in the digital world. That's great. Absolutely. 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 <laughs> you know, there's definitely been a lot of struggles with that. 
uh, so many of the labels were so slow to move the vinyl into CDs and, and the digital yeah. age. So I'm um, glad to hear that finally made it. Yeah, absolutely. So um, how did you get your ABC deal? And um, tell me about what the band was like at that time in terms of, you know, how much did you, you know, woodshed and how much did you work on writing songs and what was it like in the band at that time? Well, um, what was the first part of the question again? That's that thing you with ABC. <laughs> okay. Uh, actually, I'm not sure personally because again, we were teenagers when we got the we got to sign thing with Al Perkins and he signed us through Perks Music via uh, Atlantic Adco Records. So I'm not sure how we ended up with uh, on the ABC label. Um, so I have I have no clue of how that how that happened. But the woodshed where we wrote a lot of the music was Al's basement because that's what that was our, our slash our rehearsal spot. Yeah. So we wrote a lot of songs uh, in his basement uh, as a band, so to speak. And it's funny too because back then we didn't call it writing a song. We would always say, "Let's make up a song." <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> and, that sounds um, more fun. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, so I, I made up all the guitar parts and the keyboard players at the time, which was Jack Hall and Corky Meadows. They made up the keyboard parts, and Al sung. He wrote all the lyrics, and you know, we learned. At by that time, we had learned how to sing background vocals. So, so we kind of did it as a collective, so to speak. And something that's probably one in a million. We, when you mentioned pop, what you got? pop it <laughs> we were in the studio they recorded the track and we just made the song yeah, we right just, there in the studio the same pop night. what you got was we a rehearsal all song. Night. That's all. <laughs> you know we had just got to the studio for a recording session right and the band was kind of warming up getting ready to cut some stuff and we warmed up into this groove so we kept it and Al wrote some <laughs> lyrics to it and it ended up being pop what you got right exactly <laughs> A lot of those, uh, I found that a lot of those things you just kind of stumble onto end up being yeah, something yeah. special, you know? Yep. Go ahead, Al. Well, so when you were creating the uh, songs back then, um, you know, who was sort of the, the leader? I mean, how did the production process take place? Well, as far as that goes, Kevin and Dave did more of the, you know, leading the stuff, but Kevin McCord, you know, he was real big with one way as far as like different grooves and stuff and some of the stuff even though it were kevin it was also anytime there's a kevin there's a dave because dave's funk carries everything that we did and even his guitar playing on the ballads you know he's a big part of writing and you know we sit together and we feel each other and feel what we do and you know just make it work but kevin it was kevin McCord, Dave Robinson, and myself. I say as a team, yeah. I say we all did it together, probably not separately, more conjuncturally, you know. That's yeah, what I was and thinking. Kevin kind of, Kevin and I were, were neighbors. We grew up together as kids, and he lived across the street from me, so he was as he was as, as big of a James Brown fan as I was, and the cool part on his side, his mother was even a bigger James Brown fan than both of us, so she encouraged uh, us listening to James Brown and learning his songs, and and that's that's kind of where a lot of the funk came from, us uh, uh, between Kevin McCord and myself. 
Did you get to go see James Brown in the 70s perform? <laughs> we, we worked with James Brown quite a bit. Yeah. We were on the road with James Brown and Rick James. I mean, these were our idols, but we were blessed to work with them. Quite yeah, a bit. James Brown, we was on the road with him for about three months. We learned a lot. Yes, sir. Learned a lot from that man. Yes, sir. And uh, I tell you, uh, he was strong on himself, and I have to agree with him to a degree. He would always say, everything danceable uh, arrived from his music. <laughs> Even even disco. <laughs> the original disco man. I remember he put that record out. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely, absolutely. Like people would never know, but it meant so much to me when we were working with him all this time. You know, touring together, and he used to call my house, and I used to let everybody know James Brown gonna call me at a certain time. <laughs> you know, hell, you know, can you come on? Can you do this? Can you do that? And uh, had Danny Ray calling, you know, and different stuff, and it just meant so much it's like we've done more than what we even know you know and it's it's, it's been a good role it's it's been a good role and I even rick james you know he's he's a mm -hmm. he's a cool-hearted person i don't know what goes on with everything in his life but i know as far as he and i and you know we'd be on stage together he'd be holding my kids you know i mean it's just it's just i think we've been blessed more than we even know it just feels good to know what we've done in our days, you know, and that people appreciate us more than we Absolutely. probably appreciate ourselves. So Absolutely. It's, it's all good. And, yeah. and, and to look at it, too, we've had extra, an extraordinarily great career. I mean, Scott, we've performed with people like Billy Paul, The Temptations, uh, The Four Tops, that we toured with The Spinners for about a year. So we've had the we've had the pleasure of not only playing with funk acts, but we've played with, with people that were away away from our genre of music. Bobby Womack, we've played with the Manhattans. You name it, we probably we probably toured with every or did gigs with everybody except for the Jackson Five and Earthman and Fire. <laughs> yep, and we're working now a lot with the Barcades has been, you know, and Confunction. You know, I mean it's just different people who we enjoy mm -hmm. just you know, as our idols, and now we all just working together. Back in the day, you had to battle when you do a show. Now we just have fun. Yeah, <laughs> we yeah. just have fun. That, yeah, that's the cool part for me too, is being able to be on shows with groups that we idolize, like the Whispers. Whispers is probably one of my favorite singing groups on the planet. So you know, when we gig with them, I'm definitely staying to see their show when we're done. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Um. Well, wow, so I'm going to hopefully refresh your memory on some of this stuff. I know it's a long time ago. And like you said, a lot, of, a lot of it's sort of a blur because you've done so much. But, um, yeah, at ABC you had the four records. And um, I would say you started to get sort of that one-way sound on the, on, the end, on the tail end of those partners' records. Is that mm -hmm. fair to say? Yeah, yeah. 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 So how did it kind of come together? Do you think that, you know, at that point you kind of really flowed into that, that sound and style and then you just wrote that, you know, from there out? Well, I, I guess because we still kind of kept the same format to a degree, uh, as far as writing is concerned, uh, regardless to whoever wrote a song in the band, uh, we would probably come with the basics 
And then like Kevin would come with a funk track. And a lot of times he would come and just have a bass line and he would have uh, the drum beat and maybe the lyrics and, and the melody. And he would say, well, here, Dave, uh, lay a guitar part on this, you know. And uh, of course, I would always revert back to rhythm or some funk chords or something, depending on what song it was. And um, so I, I would say I would contribute that to that too. Uh, he would do the same thing with the other keyboard to see, well, here's the basic chords, play to this or, or play this, you know, because of course I can play a little piano, uh, but our keyboard players are way more better at it than I am. So once I would give them a melody, they would take it in, to the next level. Same thing with Kevin McCord. He would come with a song and say, well, here, guys, here's the track, uh, take it and, and, and take it to the keyboard parts to the next level. He did the same thing with Al. Yeah. And I, Kevin wrote a song. Right. Exactly. He would give it to Al, and Al would take it. Right. Do you feel like, um, I mean, I think uh, Kevin is a tremendous keyboardist, one of, you know, belongs in the pantheon with all the great funk keyboard players. Do you think he kind of doesn't get as much notice as, as the other guys? Say it again. I'm sorry. You said, now, Ke now Kevin was the bass player, remember? Never. Oh, um, the keyboard player was who? Well, okay, let me let me put it to you like this. Keyboard player was Jack Hall, Corky Meadows, who's Jonathan Meadows. Then we had a keyboard player named Leroy Hyder. Now, even though they played keys, now don't, no, no, we're not going to get it too off the track. A lot of the simpler tracks that Kevin did, he laid the keys himself because it was like a two or three chord, just a little funk groove lick, like a tap, tap, tap thing. He laid those. Anything more extensive, he had the other guys to to play. So let's say like one of those signature sort of synthesizer squiggle kind of things that's, you know, a centerpiece for some of the tracks. Who might come up with that? I would uh, say, Dave, you with them little, them little boxes. Yeah, little, between, you talking about the music? Yeah, the yeah, yeah somewhere between myself, yeah. Kevin, Jack Hall, and Corky Meadows. A lot of times we would all be in the studio together and kind of whoever had the best lick would we would just use that particular part so we just kind of did a lot of stuff together you know uh fortunately i was the only guitar player so nobody else could <laughs> but the keyboard parts came in like for instance we had like the titles the title album who's fooling who where cutie pie is at actually the keyboard part on that was played by app and I'm definitely not a keyboard player. <laughs> he wrote you, the song. You hear something, you just hum it. And then once you hum something, they can pick it up and just mm -hmm. go from there. And I just sing along with whatever they do, and we just work it out together. Yeah. Yeah. We also thought too, um, because of a lot of the a lot of the up tempo stuff that we have, which is considered funk. The keyboard parts are so simple. It's like, and and I think that's the niche that Kevin McCord found simplicity is what made those songs pocket you know like we always used to have a saying not to overcrowd the production so 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 the little bitty little chink 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 that one part would play through the whole song right you know and then on the back beat you got the bass drums and guitar on top of that so that simplicity eh, a lot of times it didn't take an extraordinarily great keyboard player to play them licks you know again but if we needed something like we had a song called music which was a very extensive keyboard song. Leroy Hyder 
played most of the keyboards on that particular track. Mm. And he was more of a jazz. He would add the jazz to the funk. Yeah. You know, and yeah, Leroy was more like a jazz keyboard player, which added a little another little flavor to our sound right, also. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So right around the end of the 70s, you did your final record as the partner's Happy Feet. And I think it was around the same year you did the One Way also and you changed labels to MCA. Mm -hmm. um, you came up with You Can Do It, which was on both <laughs> records. And, and I, I would say that was definitely sort of the uh, blueprint, if you will, for that One Way Funk. Uh, Absolutely. How, did, how did that track come together? You can do it. I'm again. I'm not absolutely a thousand percent sure, but just digging in my memory, right. you can throw in whatever you remember. We both remember half of it. Right. Um, you can do it. Or the the concept I think originally was was come between you and Kevin. Yeah. Was was Kevin McCord Al Hudson idea? Again, once they brought it to the table, uh, I of course created the guitar part for that track, and uh, that was during the disco era which um, You Can Do It was probably our first, uh, on the ABC labels, probably our first major hit. Uh, and that's why it ended, up, ended over on both albums. So when, we put the, when they put it out on the ABC label, and then MCA bought the ABC label, and they, when the next album came out, they swapped it out and put it on the next One Way project, and it continued to sell. But yeah, I think that was a, a combination of the idea came from Kevin and Al. And what was the relationship with Alicia uh, Myers? She was singing on that one, and she has a, a co-writing credit. Um, and then she went on to do her own records with MCA. What was her tie-in with One Way and the partners? Actually, Alicia Myers, being honest about it, when we grew up together, you know, her family and my family were so close, I didn't know that we weren't really cousins. We grew up as cousins, you know, and we were just that close. Her mother was my mother's best friend her father my dad's best friend but growing up you know you're a little kid and you say oh that's your cousin how people do but i really thought it wasn't but we just that close of a family and we just she was a singer with a group called the Milestones, and we just wanted her to be with us because she was so good the group was so good itself but you know and uh we asked alicia you know would she be a part of the group and we didn't know if she would or not, but she decided to come along with us. And from there, once she got with us, Alicia Myers is a person that was really, I wouldn't say too good for the group, but I would say too good to be stuck in a group when you can be such a solo artist and, you know, advance so far yourself. Mm -hmm. And that's really what happened. That's why she ended up doing a solo project and going on from there. But we still work together periodically. Yeah, she was. Yeah, uh, she was with us in Blackpool. Yeah, went to England. Yeah, yeah. she was there. Yeah, and I well, talked to him all the time. <laughs> yeah, well, I noticed Al, your your name was on her records too. So, right, right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, fortunately, um, when when they decided to do a solo project on her, she was still a part of our production company. So, uh, of course, Al Perkins uh, had us to do write and compose a lot of her material. Uh, and the ones we didn't compose, which were composed by Kevin McCord, we still played all the backup tracks. So all the guitar work on all of her songs, except for Say, 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 uh, is myself. Uh, on Say, 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 the one guitar lick was done by Terry Lewis of the Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis oh, really? duo. Yeah. 
And the piano part, which was originally done by Kevin McCord, once it got to LA with Lowell Silas and Gerald Busby, they took Kevin's piano part off and had Joe Sample to play what mm -hmm. Kevin played and just took it to another level. Yeah, with well, Joe Sample, he can definitely take it to the stratosphere. Yes, <laughs> Lord. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> he definitely did. Yeah. So again, through that, we've had a lot of um we've had a lot of interesting things going on. Let's back, if I can, I'm gonna back up to the ATCO years for half a second. Al actually recorded a couple of tracks using Al Green's band. Uh, we did a remake of I've Been Loving You right. Too Long. So they flew him to Memphis and had Al Green's band to lay the track. And he did, you know vocals down and, there too? And, and, and I did the uh, vocals in New York. Okay. And the average white band did the background on that song. Okay, okay. So we we've had some some things. Yeah. <laughs> well, that must have been a thrill, Al, when you did that. Oh yeah, for real, for real, for real, for sure. Well, pinching yourself, right? Yes, sir. <laughs> <laughs> and, and and you would think most band members would be jealous. We were not. We were like in awe, you know, that we had these cats play on our music, you know, which was a good thing. Yep. Some things were so good. I said, "Why me? What did I do?" <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Living a charmed life. For sure. <laughs> Absolutely. So, uh, you know, we mentioned United Sound earlier, and that last uh, record was recorded there. A lot of the stuff was. Um, and I know she had uh, Carl Butch Small doing percussion. I know he also played with P-Funk. So there's some tie-in there with the George Clinton P-Funk thing, and Jim Vitti as an engineer did the P-Funk mm -hmm. records. What was it like in that environment? Back then, we didn't think about it much. We... It was kind of a norm, you know, uh, it was kind of a norm because all those cats were always around the studio. And if we got to set in on a session, it was cool. And we, you know, it didn't hit us. I think that all the stuff that we've done such as that and being in those types of environments probably didn't actually hit us good to maybe 10 or 15 years ago right. when we sat down and really thought about like, man, do you realize what we've done, the people that we've been around? Right, and Carl Bush Small, it's funny you mentioned his name. I mean, like, not just real recently, but we were over at a club and we just started jamming. And yeah, he's you a, know, I mean, he's a good, he's a good friend. Yeah. You know, it's just, it's it's personal as much as it is musical, yeah. you know. So I've done, I've done all, sessions you know. for him. His son had a rap group a couple of years ago. I went over and did some guitar tracks. And as a matter of fact, Carl is playing with the Spinners right now. And also, he had me do, Carl had me come out to L.A. to do a thing with Corrupt. Yep. You know. Some hooks and stuff for yeah. some of the rap groups that was with Death Row. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, well, those kind of grooves that you guys laid down we were talking about earlier and, and how they're loved in the West Coast definitely influenced a lot of that West Coast uh, rap and gangster rap. Yeah. Um, but um, how'd you guys come up with the one-way name when you switched labels? <laughs> well, actually, back in the day, we were like Al Hassan Soul Partners, so it was a stigma by using the word soul, so we had to really come up with a name, because we were trying to get what on W, CKLW, you The long-sided, the record company was trying to push us in the pop market, right? and the word soul wouldn't let them get us on pop stations back in the day. Right. So go ahead. And we just came up, you know, like one way to God and then actually in all the street signs, the free advertisement, 
you know, and so we just said we'll be one way and just go one way just means one way straight forward. Never look yeah. back. And just kept yeah, it from there. Record company seemed to like it. Yeah. <laughs> Is it, isn't it crazy how that's changed though? I mean, one time yeah. it was like race records, then it was soul, then it was R and B, then it was uh, right. bl black, then it was urban. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, I, I tell my kids how back in the day you would never hear Justin Bieber on a black radio station or you wouldn't hear uh, Michael Jackson or Prince on, on a pop radio station. You know, so, yeah, now I, I'm, I'm actually kind of loving it because it's giving uh, all people uh, an ear to all types of music. You know, so I, I think it's a good thing, so to speak. Oh, yeah. I mean, segregated radio was not cool. Absolutely. Right, exactly. Absolutely. <laughs> well, segregation's never cool, but yeah. 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 Could you imagine how many more tickets we're selling at concerts now? <laughs> um, so when you made the change to MCA, you started uh, growing to a whole new level of popularity. Uh, how did you guys sort of manage, you know, that in terms of, you know, getting more fans, getting more money, getting more sales, getting more attention? Yeah. Again, I have to keep reiterating because we started so early, we really didn't pay a whole lot of attention. We didn't real I think like Al said earlier, we probably didn't actually realize how popular we were. But now to think about it, when we traveled back in the day, not only did we do the tour bus thing, but we had a full road crew. When I say a full road crew, we had a full road crew and a road manager. And I, I never will forget the, the one thing that keeps popping in my mind, kind of remind me of what I've seen the Jacksons do. We were a little late getting into Saginaw, Michigan. We had just came from the South and we had a gig in Saginaw with the OJs. And we were about an hour prior to showtime. And back then our road crew was so tight, we used to make them rehearse because they had to set up all of our gear without us being anywhere near them. Mm -hmm. So we get into Saginaw with only an hour to get set up, change clothes, and perform. We went straight to the dressing room, started changing, changing our clothes. We come out about 25 minutes later. Our crew had the, had the stuff on stage set up, and we just hit the stage. So I thought we ran off the bus like the Jags, past the screaming fans, into the dressing room, back to the stage. So we didn't really, I don't think we realized how popular we were. So uh, I can't i can't really reiterate on how it felt back then because it was just what we loved to do. <laughs> well, there was a big difference, big difference doing the big concert theater oh, yeah. as to doing the clubs though. Yeah. You know, because back then when you, just like, I mean, we could go into uh a club. a club or a small stadium or whatever, and we could headline, you know, as to opening up for this person, that one, and that one, and that one. And it just, it felt good to be able to do this, but it never went here, you know. Yeah, it never swallowed our heads It up. never, it, you know, it just, when you do what you do and you enjoy what you do and you're just blessed to be able to do it, you're just happy with that, you know. And it's, it, we could be more than what we even, no, at the time, but it was just good enough for us just to be ourselves and enjoy what we do. And so many people enjoy us as well. Yeah, 
how many people can say they did a tour with James Brown? Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it's like, again, this stuff only actually just hit Al and I maybe about 10, 20 years ago when we actually started talking about it. Like, man, we actually played with James Brown. And, and you know, we did, we did the Apollo Theater with James Brown once. We did the Apollo Theater with The Temptations. We did the Apollo Theater with uh, Billy Paul. And then one place I remember we only played there once, we played the Schubert Theater with New Edition and Teddy Pendergrass. <laughs> and I can tell you one thing for the history books that if we didn't tell it, it wouldn't be known. When we were out with James Brown, yeah. he was rehearsing and he got mad at his band. In St. Louis. And he had them stop and he had one way to come and play behind him because just for attitude problem to show the band, you aren't the only one who could do this. But it's nothing that the movie would ever know or anybody else if we didn't tell it ourselves. But it was, you know, it's something to remember, though. So you were actually at JB for a day? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. For, about, this was in for the, about 15 minutes. This was in the middle of, it was in the middle of his show. Yeah, about 15 um, minutes. Uh, his role manager said that he had got into it with his band and he told his band that anybody could play his music. Well, fortunately, he heard us a sound check. We, I don't know if we were supposed to do this or not, but we were kids. We did it anyway. We sound checked playing Sex Machine. Mm. So that's how he knew we could play his music. In the middle of his show, he had his band to stop and had us come on stage. And he went, one, two, three, four. And we went to chant, 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 right on cue. Yes, right. And played about half a song with him on stage. Yeah. And unfortunately, there were no camcorders. Right, right. <laughs> but if we had a new then, what it would mean now? <laughs> would have had news crew or somebody come in and play. Right, exactly, exactly. <laughs> so that was um, that was something that's in our in our history, uh, also that that uh, that's never been that the public doesn't that's not aware of. You know. Well, that's amazing. So, um, Alan, Dave. That first record, One Way, was just called... Actually, the first two records had the same name. How did that happen? They're both <laughs> One Way featuring Al Hudson. What happened there? I don't know. That's, that's some MCA's doing. Right. That, that was some record company <laughs> I'm stuff. Beyond, I, I'm beyond. It's like it came out. Okay, well, that's who we are today. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny when we look at the royalty statements. It'll have Al Hudson and the Soul Partners. It'll have Al Hudson and the Partners. It'll have One Way. It'll have... One way featuring Al Hudson, it'll have Al Hudson in one way. So <laughs> we have no clue why they kept switching that around like that. Right. <laughs> have no idea whatsoever. <laughs> well, you put, right. you put you put a nice long version of You Can Do It on that record, um, which was cool.